0: All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the book of Acts. In this session, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 42. And let's just set that in context before we look at the details. Luke, over these first handful of chapters of the book of Acts, has been giving us snapshots, really showing the growth and the impact of the church in the city of Jerusalem. In fact, for the first six or so chapters, that's really the heart of Luke's purpose is to help us see how the church triumphed in the city of Jerusalem. And so he's been giving us these snapshots showing how the church has continued to grow and impact and how as they grew and made an impact, that then led to tension with the leadership there in the city of Jerusalem. In fact, just two scenes ago, Peter and John were arrested, interrogated, and given an official order to cease preaching in the name of Jesus And cease teaching about the resurrection. And then in the very last snapshot that we looked at, uh, we saw how the Spirit was stirring up the hearts of the people, particularly the wealthy, to give very generously, to sell off some of their property, sell off some of their land, to take those proceeds, bring them to the apostles to be used to take care of the needy in the church. And as part of that, then we saw how Ananias and Sapphira lied about that very thing how they sold some property, they gave a percentage of it to the apostles, kept a percentage for themselves, but said that the percentage they gave was the whole percentage. And in short, they really lied and made a mockery of the Spirit's work, and how that led to immediate direct judgment upon them and made an example of them in front of the whole church, and how that led to fear spreading within the church that there was this new renewed fear of God and of sinning and mocking God's work and that fear even spread out into the people. And so we've been looking at these snapshots such as these two. Now what Luke does here in this section is gives us another snapshot showing the rising hostility towards the apostles and towards the church in Jerusalem, particularly among the Jerusalem leadership, And this snapshot also shows that that they're completely helpless to stop the expansion of the church. The scene begins with a general description of the growth and impact of the gospel in Jerusalem, and even including some of the surrounding area. Here's what happens. Verse 12. Now, at the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. This has been consistent in the early chapters of Acts. Luke has reported how the apostles are doing miracles in and among the people. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. And so once again, that's their general meeting place in the temple. We've noted that before. And so they're gathering in Solomon's porch, in the temple, the apostles are having this powerful preaching ministry that's really authenticated, credentialed with miracles that are being done by them. And then Luke gives a description of really the, this, just kind of this multifaceted response of people in the church, outside of the church, to the apostles and to their ministry. Verse 13, it says, but none of the rest dared to associate with them. So there's a certain level of fear, apprehension. You can understand that in view of Ananias and Sapphira, what happened with them. It's like, don't mess with those dudes, right? And So there's, this, there's a certain amount of fear there. However, at the same time, there's a certain level of respect. However, the people held them in high esteem. And so there's this standoffishness. There's this deep respect. Um, and there are people coming to faith in Jesus, verse 14. And increasingly, believers in the Lord, large numbers of men and women, were being added to their number to such an extent that, we'll see what happens next. But this is fascinating because we saw in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, when the church began, it was 3,000 people came to faith in Jesus and were baptized. Then we saw at the end of chapter 4, it was 5,000 people And now Luke has just quit giving number estimates, right? It's just such a large amount of men and women. We're not even going to try to count them. We're being added to their number. And so you have this mixed reaction of people. You have a certain group that's kind of standoffish and not daring to associate with them. You have a segment of the population holding the apostles in high esteem. And you have people coming to faith in Jesus in large numbers to such an extent, Luke says, verse 15, that they are are even carrying their sick out into the streets, laid them on cots and pallets in the streets, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. It, it seems as if they're hoping that somehow as Peter comes by, his shadow might fall on them. And, and through his shadow, God's power would be released and they would be healed. It doesn't specify if it worked or not. That's just the reaction of the people. Um, and, and really, this, this, this powerful impact that the ministry of the apostles is having in the city of Jerusalem, winning over thousands and thousands of people. In fact, Luke goes on and tells us in verse 16 that people were coming from surrounding villages. Notice verse 16, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together as well, bringing people who were sick or tormented with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. And so now you have people, this is the first mention of this in the book of Acts, people coming from some of the surrounding towns and villages. And this is a very common thing in the ancient world. You'd have a major city like Jerusalem, a walled city. Then you would have these little villages Uh, around it that would depend on that major city for protection in times of war or distress for provision, right? They would bring in their, their produce and sell them in the city. Uh, So you would have all these small little villages. And we know the names of some of these villages, even though Luke doesn't mention them here, because if you've read the gospels, you've heard the names of some of these surrounding towns uh, around Jerusalem, places like Bethlehem or Bethany, or Bethphage, that were up in the the hills uh, around Jerusalem. People from those towns now are making their way into Jerusalem with some of their sick people and hoping that the apostles would uh, be able to heal them as well. Luke says, and they were all being healed. So now Luke has given us this general description here in, in verses 12 through 16 of the impact and the expansion of the apostles' ministry and the gospel in Jerusalem so much so that it's now beginning to affect the towns outside of Jerusalem as well. And then in view of that, the the Jerusalem leadership is like, we got to do something about this. And so look what happens, verse 17. But the high priest stood up along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were all filled with Jealousy. Luke attributes really jealousy as being the thing that's driving them to this point. They're losing control, they're losing power right, their authority is diminishing, the apostles' authority and prestige and honor is increasing, and in view of that, they can't handle it, and so the high priest, along with his associates, the ruling class, the ruling elite, in other words, from the sect of the Sadducees, we've talked about who the Sadducees are before, that they're the aristocracy in Jerusalem, and so they rise up against the apostles, in verse 18, they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in a public prison. And so they put them in jail. Uh, But during the night, this is hilarious, actually. During the night, while the apostles are in jail, here's what happens. During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison, leading the apostles out and said, go and stand and speak to the people in the temple, the whole message of this life. So upon hearing this, they entered the temple area around daybreak and began to teach. And so God sends an angel to, uh, to break them out of jail. And he does breaks them out of jail at night, gives them specific instructions. And the instructions are keep preaching keep teaching. Like, we're making great progress here. Keep it going, right? The momentum is on our side. Keep preaching. And so they do. Uh, They entered the temple about daybreak and began to teach. And the reason daybreak is a good time is people gathering into the temple for morning prayers and morning sacrifice. And so there's going to be a crowd there. And so they gathered into the temple and began to preach and teach some more. And then here's what happens. The story gets pretty humorous. Now, when the high priest and his associates came, so they get up in the morning, they come back to their council chambers. They called the whole council together. So the Supreme Court of the Jews, they call them all together. uh, That is all the Senate of the Sons of Israel. So Luke has emphasized this. It's the high priest. It's his associates. It's the whole council. He he even gives them a, a bonus title, right? All the Senate of the sons of Israel. All of this is to emphasize: these are the power brokers in Jerusalem. These are the, this is the full ruling class. And look how helpless they are to stop what's going on. Um, they all gather together, and they send orders to the prison for them—that is, the apostles—to be brought. And so they get up in the morning. They all gather together. They send orders to send one of the the officers to the the prison to bring the apostles back. But verse 22, the officers who came did not find them in the prison. So they come to the prison to get the apostles and it's like, they're gone. The apostles are gone. And not only that, they're gone, but everything's locked up and as it should be. So how in the world did they get out? Look how they report back. They didn't find him in the prison. So they returned and reported saying, We found the prison door locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Just listen to the helplessness here. Um, We got there. Everything was as it should be. The guards are standing duty. The doors are locked securely. We opened the doors. No apostles in there. It's like, what happened to them? Where did they go? A natural assumption would be someone on the inside let them out. Maybe that's what uh, the council assumes. Who knows? They never even ask that question. They just are trying to figure out what to do about all this. And so here's what happens. Verse 24. Now, When the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest heard these words, remember who the captain of the temple guard is. We've talked about him. He's the number two man in Jerusalem. He's second only to the high priest. He's over the temple police. He's over kind of temple operations. Um, And so he hears this. The chief priest heard these words. They're greatly perplexed about uh, as to what could have happened to them, right? Like what in the world happened here in that moment? While they're trying to figure all this out, like, well, where did they go and what's going on, right? Verse 25, but someone came and reported to them, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple area and teaching the people. And so they've arrested them, brought them in, put them in jail, have guards, and somehow they got out of jail and they're right back in the temple, back at it first thing in the morning. Um So, verse 26, the captain of the temple guard went along with his officers. So he himself goes, not just going to send his officers, he's going to make sure he gets them, right? So he and his officers go, proceed to bring them back without violence. They try to do it orderly. Why? Because they were afraid of the people and they didn't want to get stoned. So they're going to do this in an orderly fashion because the apostles have some honor among the people, right? So they bring them back to the council, verse 27. When they brought them back, they had them stand before the council. Remember, the council meets in the semicircle. The apostles now are placed in the center, and the high priest interrogated them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us few things to note out of this remember two scenes ago when peter and john were arrested they they let them go because they didn't have any really official reason to punish them or to keep them in this case however the situation has changed notice we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name in other words you are in violation of a court order that's the idea That there is an official ban, there's an official court order. Now you're in violation of it, which means we have now more authority over you. We have more reason to hold you uh, uh, accountable for your actions and to even punish you if necessary. So we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet they say you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and so you continue to do it, even though we gave you this order. You continue and you filled Jerusalem like. It's growing to such an extent that this is taking over the city of Jerusalem. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. In other words, you keep saying that we are responsible for his death. Here's the irony of that. When they were executing Jesus, right? uh, The the leadership, these very members of the council, uh, said to Pilate about Jesus, his blood be upon us and on our children. In other words, in the moment of putting Jesus to death, they were fine with taking responsibility for uh, having his blood on their hands. You can see that in Matthew 27, verse 25. But now, now in this moment where it's no longer convenient and it's no longer a good idea to be uh, responsible for killing Jesus, they want to disassociate from it, and Peter and the apostles aren't going to let them do that. And so... Uh, Peter responds to this accusation and the apostles respond in verse 29 and say, we must obey God rather than men. Um, Peter had raised this very issue two scenes ago when he and John were arrested. You guys decide if we should obey you rather than God. Here, it just states it straight up. We have to obey God rather than men. And this puts the council at odds with God. This puts the Ruling body of the Jewish nation who are supposed to represent God to the people, this puts them at odds with God. Like, we can't obey your order because we have to obey a higher order, and that higher order is God himself. We must obey God rather than men. The, the issue is, is that their order to stop preaching would force the apostles to disobey God, and they're not going to do that. God, through Jesus, had commissioned them to make disciples of all nations. God had sent an angel the very night before, broke them out of jail, who told them uh, to keep preaching. So they know who gives the higher order. God's order is higher than man's order. We can't obey your order because if we had If we had done that, we would be disobeying God. We must obey God rather than men. And then Peter goes on and once again preaches Jesus to them, verse 30. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus. This is why we have to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging on a cross. Notice, Peter's not going to let them off the hook. He's still going to bring this man's blood up on them. You... Put to death by hanging him on the cross. In fact, he uses a very strong word for put to death. There, it's not just the normal word to kill. This is a word that has the force of murder. You murdered him. You put him to death by your own hands. The word has uh, the word for put to death has the word hand within it. It's you put him to death with your own hands, and it is often used in the sense of murder in Greek language. So you murdered him. God raised him up you you put him to death by your own hands you murdered him by hanging him on a cross he is the one that God exalted to his right hand as prince and savior so you put him to death by hanging him on a cross the ultimate disgrace and shame that you that someone could endure in their culture God exalted him Um, To his right hand, the highest honor a human being could be given. And so he, he went from the lowest low to the highest high. He was exalted as prince, as leader, prince, ruler, and savior of the people of God. He's the true ruler. He's the true leader of God's people and the true savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And Peter says, we are witnesses of these things. We apostles, that's their job, right? We saw that clear back in chapter one. Their whole job is to be an eyewitness of God raising Jesus from the dead of the resurrection. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Couple things there. The Holy Spirit... Uh, Jews of the day all look forward to the, the times when God would pour out his spirit and make things new. The fact that the spirit has been poured out is is a testimony that the days of Messiah have begun, that the the promises of the prophets are being fulfilled in their very days. The presence of the Spirit is, Proof of that, is testimony of that. And the Spirit is testifying to these things through the powerful work of the apostles, through the miracles that they're doing. This is the work of the Spirit in and through them. And so um, you have the apostles, you have the Holy Spirit together, joint witnesses that God's uh, new era has begun, that the Messiah has come, that Jesus is uh, the Messiah, the Lord and King. And God has given his Holy Spirit, Peter says, To those who obey him. And since the council doesn't have the spirit and the apostles do, who's obeying God? And so, all of this simple little speech that Peter gives, all of it has this force of, we're on the side of God and you are not. Well, how did the council respond to this? Look at verse 33. But when they heard this, they became infuriated and nearly decided to execute them. They were enraged. They were upset. They got the force of what Peter is saying, and they wanted to put them to death. They wanted to execute them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel intervenes and urges them to proceed with caution. And so verse 34, a Pharisee named Gamaliel stands up. We have the whole council there. So you have some some that are Sadducees, some that are Pharisees, and even though those were two kind of diametrically opposed groups in a lot of ways, they didn't always get along, they, were, they had some very different belief systems about the resurrection and some of that, they both made up the council. And so here you have a Pharisee named Gamaliel. And Gamaliel isn't just any old Pharisee, he's one of the highest respected rabbis of the day. What do we know about him? Well, Gamaliel was the grandson of the famed Rabbi Hillel. Uh, and probably, as best as we can tell, Gamaliel was a teacher in the Hillel school. The this Hillel school was a little more moderate than the Shammai school, which was a little more stringent among the Pharisees. And Gamaliel seems like he was uh, a teacher in that school. We also know that the Apostle Paul was one of his students uh, that he studied under Gamaliel, uh, Paul says. And so um, that's important. We learned that in Acts 22, verse 3. We also know that Gamaliel was so um, well-loved, so respected, so honored, that when he died in the year A.D. 52, uh, what was said uh, among the Jews was, when Gamaliel died, that the glory of the law had departed, that he had a reputation for being scholarly, wise, and an advocate of moderation. And so here, in this moment, Gamaliel stands up, and he's going to have some advice for the council. This is what uh, Luke says. Now, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And so he orders for the apostles to be removed from council chambers because he has something he wants to say. And he doesn't want the apostles to hear it for whatever reason. And he said, verse 35, to to them, to the council, men of Israel... Be careful as to what you are about to do with these men, right? Like they were infuriated, enraged. They were were about to put them to death and execute them. Be careful what you do with these men. And then he gives two historical examples of people who led messianic movements, led some revolts, and what came of them. The first one is a guy named Thutis. For some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined him, but he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed, and it came to nothing. And so the first example is a guy named Thutis. Josephus mentions a guy named Thutis that led some sort of revolt. It's just that the Thutis Josephus mentioned comes at a later date than this Thutis, because he comes after uh, this time period when this event happened right here in Acts chapter 5. So if Josephus is mentioning the same Thutis, then Josephus gets his date wrong. Or, which is just as likely, is that there were uh, other revolts led by a a guy named Thutis. For example, in the first century, there were just so many revolts and so many of these sorts of uh, uprisings that occurred that in a 40-year period, four different men named Simon led movements. Um, In a 10-year period, there were uh, multiple men, three, three men named Judas that led uprisings. And so, Either Josephus got his date wrong or there's another Thutis that uh, Gamaliel is referring to here in this instance. And so he mentions a Thutis, that Thutis gathered about 400 people. When Thutis was killed, it eventually petered out. Then, he is, then uh, Gamaliel offers another example, verse 37, after this man... Judas of Galilee appeared in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. This guy, Judas of Galilee, we know exactly when this happened. This happened in AD 6, the year 6 AD. uh, And it was a tax revolt. That's what's meant by a census. And those tax census were always inflammatory time periods because they, uh, they imposed upon the Jews the Roman authority, and reminded people that they were still under their control. Well, Judas of Galilee led an uprising in that year, AD 6, um, that uh, eventually petered out as well, right? And so he says, he drew some people after him. After he perished, all those who followed him, they were scattered as well. So he gives these two examples from history, Gamaliel does, and then he says this in verse 38. And so in the present case, here's what I recommend. Here's his suggestion. He's really going to offer a little test. Here's what I recommend. I say to you, Gamaliel says, stay away from these men and leave them alone. For if the source of this plan or movement is men, it will be overthrown. But if the source is God, you won't be able to overthrow them or else you might even find yourself fighting against God. And so uh, Gamaliel's advice is, look, if this is from men, then it's going to probably peter out anyhow. And if it's from God, you won't be able to stop it. That's what he suggests. Now, there's a certain sense in which uh, Gamaliel's Case is true, right? He's given a couple of examples where they just kind of petered out. We can think of it over the whole course of history, even outside of Jewish history. There's plenty of times where uprisings have happened and, and they petered out. But there's also times where false religions have gotten started and false movements have kept going for uh, decades and decades and centuries and centuries. And so Gamaliel's advice isn't 100% right, but the second half is completely true, where he says in verse 39, if This is from God. If this movement, if what these men are teaching is really from God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you might find yourself fighting against God. And that's the key issue here that Gamaliel wants him to focus on. Gamaliel himself seems a little undecided maybe this is actually from God. Look at the miracles and look at what they're doing. Maybe God's at work here. And if it is from God, we're not going to stop it. If it's not, it'll probably fizzle out like Thutis and Judas. And Gamaliel seems a little open to the possibility that this is from God. Well, the council takes Gamaliel's advice, verse 40, and this is what happens. They followed his advice. They, After calling the apostles in, they flogged them. And ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then release them. So they decided not to execute them, but they weren't going to let them off easy. And so they flogged them. That is, they whipped them. Uh, more than likely, this is the standard 40 lashes minus one that the Jews used with a whip. And so uh, we're not sure if they gave them the, that full treatment or not. We, we don't know, but uh, the maximum According to Old Testament law, they could do was 40 lashes, and Jews typically did 39 in case they miscounted, 40 minus 1. And so they got got whipped, and then they restated their order, cease speaking in the name of Jesus, and let them go. Well, how did the apostles respond to that? Look at verse 41. So then they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And so the apostles get whipped. They get ordered not to speak anymore. And they leave the council chambers, even in the midst of their pain, rejoicing. Why? Because they were able to identify with Jesus and his shame. They, they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. It's our honor, Jesus, to be treated in disgrace and humiliation for you. We are so grateful that in our service to you, we are so aligned with you, and they are so opposed to you that we could suffer shame for your name. What a phenomenal testimony and a phenomenal response, a phenomenal example really for us um, that they're suffering Uh, Isn't a cause for discouragement or dismay, but a cause for rejoicing that they could suffer shame for his name. And then verse 42, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept on teaching and preaching the good news of Jesus, the Messiah. And they did not stop preaching. They didn't obey the order. They kept preaching uh, Jesus every day in the temple which means in public, they didn't go into hiding. They didn't withdraw in this case. They kept doing it right in the the center of town, in the temple itself, the very headquarters of the ruling elites. They kept preaching Jesus in the temple and from house to house leading smaller studies in people's homes. They kept on preaching Jesus. Now, as we wrap up this snapshot from the life in the early church, just some reflections as to what I see as the theme of this story. Obviously, you have the growth and expansion of the church that inaugurates this. And at the end, you have the apostles continuing right on preaching and teaching uh, the name of Jesus. And so, we're book ended with that we get simple obedience to the mission of Jesus stated from the apostles. We must obey God rather than men. so much so that they're even willing to suffer for it. Like we're going to obey God. And if you feel the need to to whip us, fine. We're going to rejoice that we are worthy to be uh, treated shamefully for the sake of Jesus. Simple obedience, even in view of suffering. We get all of that here in this story. And the other thing we get is We get the helplessness of the Jerusalem leadership to just stop the work of God in and through the the apostles and through the church. They just continue meeting. They continue gathering in the temple and in homes. Uh, The apostles continue teaching and preaching the name of Jesus. And you, you can't even keep your prisoners in jail because God's breaking them out with an angel, right? And there's this utter sense of helplessness to stop the growth and expansion of the church. And so it seems to me with uh, great irony, Luke has actually put the lesson, the theme, the message out of this scene into the mouth of one of the rulers, Gamaliel himself. What Gamaliel said is, If this is from God, you can't stop it. And that seems to be the message Luke wants us to hear out of this snapshot, that men can't stop God's work. That seems to be the big theme of this story here, that uh, no matter how hard they try, no matter how much they oppose the message, men can't stop the work of God. And so here in Acts chapter 5, the gospel is growing and expanding. It's beginning to attract and draw to it people from the outlying regions. And we're expanding now beyond just the walls of Jerusalem itself. The leadership are, are, you know, they're trying to stop the apostles, but men can't stop God's work. That was the case then. It's always been the case when God's people humbly, willingly, and faithfully obey God And make disciples. They proclaim the name of Jesus with courage like the apostles. Uh, They even endure hardship and suffering with joy and courage like the apostles. Men can't stop the forward expansion of the gospel. And they can't stop the work of God.